Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. Can you bring me down a little bit? Am I a little loud? I'm a little loud. But not in life, just on stage. Hey, it's, it's great to see you here. Uh, if you're new at Bergen Park Church, uh, welcome. We'd love to get to know more about you. If you want to go to the Connect Center, which is on the right as you head out, we'd love to gather your information and kind of connect with you. If you're open for coffee, we're always open to do that as well. Hey, I got a question for you before we jump into the passage. We're in Nehemiah chapter 5. And we're going through this series that we've called Holy Ambition, moving from selfish ambition to the place of holy ambition. And the question is, what is the greatest threat to your faith and to the church? There are conferences out there. If you look online, there's conferences about what is the greatest threat to the church. To the church, and what I mean, the church being the church. What is the greatest threat to the church? What is the greatest threat to your faith? And we're going to kind of wrestle through that question as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5. And Nehemiah's in this place, if you know the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is called by God. He has this holy ambition placed on his heart. He has a burden to go and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And really to literally to rebuild the wall. And God puts this burden on his heart and he goes to the city. And in chapter 5, we see that for the first time in five chapters, the work that God's people had been called to do is stopped. And the question is, what is powerful enough to stop the work and the will of God in your life? We're going to discover that as we jump into Nehemiah chapter 5. You guys ready? All right, let's pick it up. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 and go down to verse 13. So Nehemiah chapter 1, chapter 1. Not chapter 1. Chapter 5. Verse 1. That's where we are. The word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there, there were those who said, Our sons and daughters, we are many, and so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We're borrowing money from the, for the king's taxes for our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help. For the other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest from each other, from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you, even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent. And they could not find a word to say. And so I said... The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of, of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. 
Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money and grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you said. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let's pray. Father, we set aside this space to gather together, not not for an event. We gather for you. We want to be with you. Father, we want to, in being with you, become like you, and then to walk out into the world and to do as Jesus did. We want to be the people of God and the mission of God through the power of God. And yet, Father, would you expose our own hypocrisy? Would you expose the unrepentant sin in our lives? Lord, we are not good often at looking within, being self-reflective, recognizing how our sin is brighter than the sins of the world and how our hypocrisy keeps the gospel from moving forward. And so, Lord, with your grace and your compassion and your mercy, I pray in this time you'd lead us to a place of repentance and faith. Repentance leads to joy. And so, Father, take us to a place of greater joy as we walk through this passage together. We ask you to meet us here in Jesus' name. Amen. Repentance Sunday. That's what today is. If you didn't know that, that's what today is. That's what this passage is about. And it's a challenging word. Because see, it's not calling the world to change, it's calling us to change. And as we think about that question, what is the greatest threat to the church? How would you begin to answer that? Again, when you look at the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is called by God and he sees this great opportunity to go and restore the city. And that's chapter one. For four months, he prays and he fasts. And he says, God, what do you want me to do about this? Before he shares his vision with anybody, he brings that vision to God. God cultivates his heart and says, listen, Nehemiah, this is where I want you to go. Then chapter two, Nehemiah is with the king, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. And he asked the king for these resources and the king gave him what he needed to go to Jerusalem. And he didn't give it to Nehemiah because he's such a great leader and such a great order, but the grace of God was on Nehemiah. And when the grace of God is on you, he will move the heart of the king. And that's where Nehemiah is. Then in chapter three, what happens is he travels from where he is in captivity to Jerusalem. He surveys the situation, surveys the ruin. He gathers people together and the building of the wall starts. He gathers people into 40 different working groups. There is momentum, there is commitment. And when there is commitment and faith and momentum, I can guarantee you there will be opposition. Chapter four, when you walk by faith, you will run into those who walk by sight. And what happens is opposition comes externally. It doesn't come internally from the people initially. Instead, it comes externally. And those that see the city of Jerusalem starting to get built and the walls going up, they're afraid. And they start persecuting Nehemiah and persecuting the people. And Nehemiah is frustrated. Just like you are when people come at you and they attack you and he takes his frustration to God instead of taking it out on others. That's important for us. 
that when you feel the weight of the world, the opposition of others, you share your heart honestly with God because in his presence, God's not necessarily calling you just to be good. He's calling you to be honest. And the real you has to learn to meet the real God. That's chapter four. But see, to this point, even though there's opposition, the building of the wall continues until chapter five. The one thing that God cannot overcome in our life is hypocrisy and unrepentant sin. And the one thing that stops the work is the hypocrisy of the people. Now, if we kind of move forward from Nehemiah's day to our days, there hypocrisy and unrepentant sin in the church. I think there's hypocrisy and unrepentant sin in me. So yes, it's in us. Over the last decade, and I don't know if I was younger and I didn't pay attention to this, but over the last decade, I have seen leader after leader after leader, after denomination, fall into sin, and because of that, fall into ineffectiveness for the gospel. And listen, I'm just talking about the people who are connected in my kind of tribe. I'm not talking about the whole of Christianity. I'm just looking at the people in my group. And one of the things I notice about them is all of them, for the most part, theologically, solid. Many of them wrote books about Christian living and theology. Some of them were apologetics. They, they taught about apologetics. They could quote scripture they had a great personality with others. They knew how to love. Some were the largest denominations, and instead of addressing the sexual immorality in their own communities, they're constantly looking at the sin of the world, and their eyes are darkened to the sin in their own community, and it's caused them to fall. And time and time and time again, the evangelical church focuses on the sin of the world while we are dark to the sin in our midst. And see, nothing will hold back the spirit of God and the work of God than unrepentant sin among God's people. Are we willing to receive that? That's heavy, right? It's heavy. Because I love to point out your failures. I don't want to look at mine. I love to put, look at the sin of the world and the brokenness that's around me. And in the process, you know what I start doing? I feel good about myself. But when light shines, light shines on us, and it's only in the light that we confess to our good and merciful God the sin that's going on in our hearts. And so, church, are we willing to take a hard look, not at the world and not at those people, but to take a hard look at ourselves and say, Holy Spirit, where do I need to change? And in my life, where is there unrepentant sin? We're going to talk about what that means. And where do I need to begin to change so that you can work through me and shine your light to the world. You ready for this? Let's jump back into Nehemiah chapter five. And we're gonna watch how Nehemiah addresses not the opposition from without, but the unrepentant sin from within. Again, this is a hard, hard message, but we need this. So let's jump back in. Nehemiah chapter five, verse one. Now notice this, there arose a great outcry. That word outcry is pretty familiar in the Old Testament. It's what happened when the people of Israel were in Egypt. If you remember that they cried out to God and God heard their cries and respond to them. But in this case, it's not their enemies who are oppressing them. The people that are oppressing God's people are God's people. And the outcry is against the people of Israel. Because notice, he says, the outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, what was happening? He explains, verses two and three and four. Here's what's happening. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain we may need to eat and keep alive. So, hey, we don't have enough money for food. We need to, we need to buy more food. Verse three, here's why. And they were, they were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. 
And then verse four. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes in our fields and our vineyards. Two things are going on. There's a famine in the land. And the king of Persia is taxing the people of Israel. And see, because they're rebuilding the walls, all the nations around them have kind of cut them off. And because they don't have that trade with the nations around them, they're kind of isolated and insulated. They don't have the ability to take care of themselves. And so what's happening is the wealthy individuals amongst them are taking advantage of the poor people in their community. Within the same body, within the same church, the wealthier individuals are looking at opportunities. Hey, let me let, me let you borrow some money. I know there's a famine. You need to feed your family. Why don't you borrow some money from me? I'm going to set the interest rate where I want to set it. Don't worry about that. You don't have to look at the fine print. I'll take care of that. And as things get worse and worse, and not only are they trying to feed their families, but see, there's this foreign government that's taxing them, and they're running out of resources and money. And then these wealthier individuals are taking advantage of those that are going through the difficulties of this time. And because of that, they're oppressing their own people. They cannot feed their own children. And the work that God had called them to do is halted. And listen, it doesn't matter how well we build and, how, and what we build if what we're building on the inside is corrupt. And that's what's happening in the story of Nehemiah. And notice in verse 5, it gets worse. And our flesh is as their flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, and yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. And it's not in our own power to help. We're powerless. For other men have our fields and have our vineyards. Again, the other, other men are their brothers and sisters in the same community. See, what was happening is they were so far in debt, the only way to get out of debt was to take your son and to sell him into slavery. And so they were selling their sons and daughters to those in their own community to get out of debt, to feed their family. And the wealthier individuals among them are oppressing them and taking advantage of the situation. And see, this is evil in the sight of God. Now listen, in our economy, that works. In our economy, that works. I mean, those that have the resources, when everybody's spending, they're saving. When everybody's saving, they're spending. That's the economy of our world. But you know, in the kingdom of God, we do money differently. That's what Jesus said. We're a light in the world. We're a city in the hill. That when it comes to sex, power, money, relationships, people should be able to look inside the church and say, in this difficult economic time, what's the church doing differently from the world? And if we're not doing anything differently, we got to wonder who we're following and what we're pursuing. And when it comes to the people of Israel, they were doing the same thing as the nations of the world, and yet God had told them, do not charge one another interest. Do not take advantage of each other. Instead, there was this whole principle in the nation of Israel called Jubilee, that every seven years you would just release the debts because that's what God does to us, right? He releases us from our sin and our burdens, and that's what's supposed to happen in the nation of Israel. And they had all these practices that would keep those who were really poor from starving, even when it came to the way that they cultivated their fields, they took care of one another. There was a community of care and concern. But in this case, they were simply trying to take advantage of each other. And as a result, the hypocrisy of God's people stops the work. And then in verses 6 and following, Nehemiah hears what's happening and he gets involved. 
And he calls them out. He calls out their hypocrisy. He calls out their, their brokenness and their sin. In verse 6, he says, listen, I was very angry. Have you ever felt that? You look at a situation and you were overcome with anger. Anger is a righteous and right response to sin. Now, we're going to have to push a little break on that because I think the anger we see in our world is not the righteous anger that we see in Scripture. And often the response is even from the church. The anger we see in the church, sometimes it looks more like rage and bitterness and hatred than it does righteous indignation. But notice this in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. See, Nehemiah was angry at what they were doing to each other, but he wasn't condemning. There's a difference. God calls us to be angry at sin, but he does not call us to be the judge and jury. You know, James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? Condemnation is different than simply just judgment. Judgment is evaluating what somebody's doing. It's okay to evaluate others. But in the way you evaluate others, I think Jesus had something to say about that, right? I will also evaluate you in that same way. And can we be honest? We do not evaluate others the way we evaluate ourselves. Let me say that again. We do not evaluate the sins of others the way we evaluate ourselves. Because when I sinned, there were reasons. And I believe in the grace of God, and you do not believe in the grace of God. And I know I failed, and I know I fell, but you should be gracious towards me. But when you sin, that was intentional. And your sin tells me something about your motives. It tells me something about your character. And I label you according to what you have done. But see, I don't see myself that way. And condemnation assumes I know what you deserve. Condemnation assumes I know why you did what you did. And the reality is, no, you don't. Can we just admit that? Listen, there's a lot of condemnation in our culture. We're really good at it, so it's hard to see it. You do not know the motives of others. Even when they say, these are my motives, you don't know the motives of others. That's what God's saying. There's only one lawgiver and judge. You don't know how this person lived. You don't know what they're under. You don't know what they're experiencing. That doesn't make their behavior right. But you do not have the right to condemn Instead, Jesus said, if you want to address the sin in the world, do you know where you need to start? Right here. Take the plank out of your eye, and then you can address the speck in your brother's eye. Why? Because see, if you know how to address sin in your life, you're going to know how to address sin in the world and sin in the lives of others. Because in the way you approach yourself before God, that's the way you're supposed to approach others. Nehemiah is angry because he sees what's going on. He sees the sin. He sees the brokenness. But notice what he does, which is brilliant. In verse, in verse 7, notice what it says. In his anger, I took counsel with myself. Have you ever pushed pause on your anger? I am out of control. <laughs> just watched the news, just listened to a report. I'm ready to crush somebody. In your anger, you want to kill, condemn we want to crush. We want to hurt. Nehemiah feels that. He knows that he's human. And so what he does is he pushes pause. And in his anger, he takes, his, he takes a little counsel with himself, which means, listen, Jason, what are you trying to get right now? 
what do you think God wants you to do? What do you think God wants you to do with this? Because often what we want to do is just complain. In our culture, we are gifted at complaint, but we don't actually do anything. We love to complain about the brokenness of sin, but we're not actually going to get involved. I'm not actually going to care. I'm worried about the schools, but I'm not going to go to the schools and serve anybody there. I want prayer back in the school, but I'm not going to pray for the kids in our youth group. I'm not going to support those who are actually reaching out to the youth in our culture. I want to complain about what everybody's doing to our youth, but I'm not actually going to do anything. I just expect you to value what I value and to do something about it when I'm not going to do anything. Can we be honest? That's our culture. We complain about what's going on, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't evaluate it. But when you claim to value something, it should show up in the way that you actually live your life. You see that in Nehemiah as the story ends. We're not going to get to it. But Nehemiah has incredible wealth. He's a governor over this region. And instead of exacting um, interest from his own people, he's using what he has to bless others and to give it away. He's in the place of those who are oppressive, but he's not being oppressive. Instead, he's revealing their own hypocrisy. Church, there are things that matter, but are we actually getting involved? Are we just simply complaining about what other people are doing? Nehemiah gets involved. And he calls out the very people in his midst who are doing what they're doing. He has this holy confrontation. And so it says in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. I examined myself. I examined my motives. Then I brought charges. It's okay to address somebody. You're in the wrong. I brought charges. Now, we did this in two ways. One privately first, and then he brings it publicly to keep them accountable. You need to do that. I don't know if you realize that. Because, see, privately, we can be sitting at coffee and say, listen, yeah, you're right. I'm going to address that. You're right. I, I need to change that. But, see, when you bring it out publicly to people that trust and can hold them accountable, something's going to be done. And so that's what we see. I brought charges, verse 7, against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you're exacting interest. Now, in Deuteronomy 23, Exodus 22, God says, do not exact interest from your brothers. You're doing the very thing God told you not to do. And I held a great assembly against them. Verse 8, and we said, as far as we are able, he says, as far as we are able, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but even you, you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. He's saying, listen, you guys know what it's like to be enslaved. What are you doing? We were disobedient to God, and in our disobedience, these nations came in. They took us off into enslavement. We knew what it was like to be oppressed, and we're doing the same thing to each other. And yet we hated when those nations did it to us, but we're okay when we do it to others. It's not right. Have you lost your mind? What does God have to teach us? And notice in verse 8, what did they do? It's the best thing you can do when somebody calls you out. Be silent. (laughs) Hardest thing in the world. Be quick to listen. You know how to finish it. Slow to speak. Right. But when you call me out, the last thing I want to do is be silent. You know why? Because that's convicting. I know there's something right in what you're saying, but I don't want to admit it. It's pride. In this case, they were humble. I mean, Nehemiah gets a perfect situation. It all works out. It's beautiful. Normally, it doesn't work that well. You call people out, normally they're not silent. 
and they could not find a word to say. It's beautiful. And verse nine, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. And notice what he's concerned about. He's not concerned that the work has stopped. He's not concerned that he's inconvenienced. Rather, he says, ought you not to walk in the fear of God? And greater than that, I mean, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, they're making fun of us, guys. The world's looking at our lack of character, our lack of integrity, our lack of ownership, and they want nothing to do with us. They think we are a joke. Why? Because we will not take serious and take accountability for our own actions. We're just blaming others. And he says, guys, we're not walking in the fear of God, number one. And two, because of that, we're bringing the taunts of our enemies upon us. We bring shame to the cause of Christ. And Jesus talked a lot about that. Guys, count the cost. Count the cost. Before you go out and live for me and build your life on me, count the cost. Because see, when your life fails, it brings shame on the cause of Christ. And can we be honest in the evangelical church? We have brought a lot of shame on the cause of Christ. We can be, we can be honest about that. Is there persecution and accusation that's unfair? Certainly. But when we don't own what is ours and take responsibility for the sin in our own midst, we lose the integrity, we lose the ability to speak to the culture. And you know what's more important than just the culture? It's the next generation that's watching you. And the next generation that is in the church are watching Christians and they're saying, I yeah, I don't see a benefit in following Christ. Because I look at all the angry people out here and the bitterness and the hatred and the discord and the fits of rage, and then I go to church and I hear the same conversations just kind of cloaked in righteousness. And the next generation is looking at the church and they're saying, where is it? Where is that power in following Christ? And listen, I'm, I'm drawing a, a strong picture. I understand that but it's to get our attention and to start asking the question, where does the Holy Spirit need to convict me? Where, if you spent some time and said, God, where's the hypocrisy in my life? Where's the unrepentant sin? Have you spent time focusing on that and allowing the Spirit, listen, to just, just kind of nudge you, to reveal it to you? Because what's happening is you're not walking in the fear of God, and because of that, we're not glorifying the goodness of God. Holy confrontation, in this case, it addresses the sin, but what it does in verse 10 is it calls for tangible repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is described in verse 10. Watch what happens. And moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, and he says, we've got to stop We've got to abandon this exacting of interest, verse 11. And then notice what repentance does. It not only admits what's wrong, it returns. Let's return back to them their fields. I'm thinking of Zacchaeus right now. Remember Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little man was he, climbed up in that sycamore tree. See what he could see. Little fanal graph right there. So what happened to Zacchaeus? He meets Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, Zacchaeus, go sell what you have and give Give 40% of what you've taken. Give, give 140%. He just goes out and he lives out of generosity because God has changed his life. And this is what's happening here. They begin to give back everything they've taken. Their fields, verse 11, their vineyards, their 
their orchards, their houses, the percentage of money they took, the grain, the wild, the oil that's been exacted. That's true repentance. True repentance is not sorrow for sin. That's worldly repentance. Worldly repentance says, uh-oh, got caught. I hate getting caught. <laughs> but as soon as the attention is off me, I'm back to doing what I did. What, you, what that is is I just don't like to get caught. True repentance recognizes the cost. It recognizes the impact of my sin and says, I'm not only hurt by the sin in my life and what it's done to God, I'm gonna move in a different direction. And you know what that requires? I don't know anyone that's changed apart from community. Sin is an addiction. Now, you may not have alcohol, you may not have pornography, you may not have all these issues, but you do have sin and that's called an addiction. And you can't overcome addiction by yourself. Very few people can overcome addiction by yourself. You need community. You need people alongside you who can guide you, speak into your life and know you. And what's happening here is true repentance. They're giving back. They're restoring what they have taken. They're making it right. Verse 12. And then they said, we will restore and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. He's holding them accountable. Verse 13. And I shook out the fold of my garment and he kind of gave him this illustration. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. The one thing that will stop the work of God in our life and in our church is unrepentant sin. Now realize, when I say unrepentant sin, it's not the presence of sin that's gonna stop the work of God in your life because we all expect that to be there. But it's the refusal to address, to admit, and to work through it together. And so what can we take from this personally? Two things that I want us to focus on. One is, is one to call ourselves to personal repentance. to call ourselves to personal repentance. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, that love is expressed by obeying my commands. The one person in scripture who is known for rebellion, his name is Satan. And Jesus says, love shows up in obedience. Why? Because love always shows up in trust. You cannot say you love someone and yet not trust them. And he says, you guys say you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you won't trust what I say. Yeah, but Jesus, listen, this area of my life is really hard for me to trust you in. Well, that's okay. But will you admit that? And will you share that with others? Listen, in the area of my sexuality, in the area of my generosity, in the area of my money, in the area of my business, all of us have areas in our life we don't want others to address. That's why we love listening to preachers that talk about the things we're good at. And that's why we murder the prophets. You know what prophets talk about? The stuff that we're sinning in. Prophets call out idols in our midst and we hate that. We love to focus on the people who are calling everybody else out except for me. And church, if we're gonna be, have an impact in this community, we have to be willing to look at the brokenness in our own lives. Because what's so interesting about the story of Nehemiah is the only thing that stops the work of God in this story is unrepentant sin and hypocrisy. It's not external opposition. It's the internal sin of the people that keeps the work from going forward. 
And Jesus in the New Testament, he constantly talked about this. He said, listen, disciples, guys, you're following me, right? You call me Lord, but why don't you do what I say? If you're gonna call me Lord, Lord, well, I would think that means you're going to, you're gonna do what I say because that's what it means to have a Lord. Trust me. And so church, when, you, when it comes to reading scripture, where do you not wanna trust them? That's an area of repentance. And see, repentance is not negative, it's positive. Because see, repentance always leads, when you look at your sin, you have to look back at Jesus, right? Because if all you do is to look at your sin, you're gonna be in despair. And I've been there. I've sat in my sin and my brokenness. Look at what I've done. Look at what you've done. That's condemnation. But see, what repentance does is it admits, it acknowledges, then it looks back at Christ and says, I recognize that I'm accepted and forgiven because of what Christ has done, not because I have my life together. And when it comes to Jesus, Jesus didn't lower the bar of expectation. You know what he did? He raised it. Because often I hear people say, I don't like reading the Old Testament. I don't like the Old Testament stuff. So much law. Are you kidding me? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? All you pious men who've never committed adultery, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that girl, woman caught in the act of adultery. I mean, that's a real sinner. You know what I mean? Come on, get your life together, immoral people. And what does Jesus do? Brother, can I talk to you for a minute? You've got a lust in your heart. I'm, I care more about your motivation than I do your behavior. And until your heart is devoted to me, your behavior really isn't devoted to me. That's just another way of looking better to the world. Now he looks at hatred, right? I've never committed murder, all these murderers out there, stealing, robbing. Yeah, but if you hold bitterness, hatred in your heart, I want your whole heart. Jesus looked deeper, he looked at our motivations, and he called us to something greater, which is the love of God. He called us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and sin. Church, are we willing to walk in that place of honest repentance? Which means, second, if we're willing to do that, we have to be in community with others. And you have to, in that community, be willing to gently, lovingly, compassionately calling out sin in one another. I think the crisis in the church is not just a crisis of morality, it's a crisis of community. We can't do this. We can't, because if we're not in community, and it takes time. Listen, you don't start that on day one, right? Hey, Bill, welcome to the Bible study. We're gonna talk about your sin today. See a lot of arrogance in you. I'm sure Bill's coming right back. Hey, Sarah, is your first time here? First time visitor, wonderful, wonderful. Saw how you drove, yeah. Saw your bumper sticker, who you voted for. We're gonna talk about that right now. Really? It takes time. And see, what happens is, is in the Christian life, then we find ourselves in crisis, right? We got no place to go. We have to be in a kind of community that can hold us accountable in church. I just want to beg for you to help us in that. You know, as leaders, we try our best. We're going to have our men's discipleship groups. We have women's Bible study. We have small groups. We try to do it all. And it doesn't even have to be in our own church. If you're in a small group in another church, God bless that. Stay in it. If it's a place where you're in scripture, in confession, in prayer for one another, continue to do that. But we need your help to come together to build that for one another because if you're not in community, there's someone next to you that needs to be in community and you're that person who can bring them in. What has God called us to? He calls us to lovingly call out sin in one another. Watch this real quick. 
James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone should bring him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 12. 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Revival always happens from the inside out. And you know the only holiness you can do anything about is your own. And so if we could evaluate where we are, are we more fixated on the holiness of those that are away from us or are we more fixated on the holiness in our own lives? And if we were really concerned about the holiness in our own lives, what if that's the solution to drawing the unholiness into that space where the gospel is heard? Because people come into a community where there is brokenness and there is confession, there is love and forgiveness and they find they can be accepted. They don't find that out in the world. But in the true gospel-centered, Christ-centered, repentance-centered, faith-centered community of faith, there is something beautiful in that, that kind of space that the world needs to see. But see, if we're not doing that work in ourselves, how can we offer that to others? And that's the beauty of the church. It's the beauty of the church. That in knowing Christ, he knows us fully. And in knowing us fully, he loves us completely. He sees the depths of our brokenness. He says, we're gonna get to that. And over time, through his grace, his mercy, through community, he begins to change his church. That's the vision God's called us to. The only thing that can keep God from working in your life is unrepentant sin. And if we're willing to address the hypocrisy in our leadership, in our pastors, and in our community, then we're in a place where God can work through us to touch the lives of others. And maybe that'll start to change the schools and to change the communities and to change what's going on around us. Hey, as we conclude this morning, we're gonna celebrate communion. If you've had a chance, hopefully you grabbed that when you walked in. And the question I wanna present to you as we share communion together is where is the Holy Spirit convicting you? You know, where is the Holy Spirit saying, yes, I need this? And maybe as we hold the elements which represents the body of Jesus Christ which was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, So that when the Father sees us, he doesn't see what we have done. He sees what Jesus Christ has done. And in that place of grace, there is honesty and change can happen. Let's take that time as we hold those elements in silent prayer. Simply to allow the Spirit of God to convict us, to show us what he wants to address in our lives. So that we can be a part of the solution to impacting the lives of others. Let's meet the Father together.
And if we will walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, will purify us from all sin. But if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, the Father, is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we, we would be called the children of God and yet that is what we are. Father, I thank you that you accept us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those that are here today have never cried out to you and said, Father, accept me through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I recognize that I have rebelled against you. Father, I chose to live life on my terms. And on my terms, I see, I see what it's resulted in. I see where it's taken me. I see the bitterness in my heart. And even if I've walked with you for a long time, Father, there's areas in my heart I don't want you to touch because I don't want to give up control. I don't want to admit. I don't want to love the way that you loved. And loving you and, Father, allowing your love into our lives, it can be frightening because you could call us to love others the same way you've loved us. And we release our fear. We confess our need. And I pray for those that have never cried out to you and say, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. I know you died on the cross for my sins. You rose again so that I might have newness of life. I want to know you, Father. Come, fill me, forgive me. Allow me to follow you, to walk after you. And Father, for those of us who have walked with you and know you, we hold in our hands a reminder of the gospel that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Receive it together in remembrance of him. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup. He said, this cup, it represents the new covenant, the relationship established in my blood. Let us receive it together.